Matthew 24, uh, verse 3 to 14. That is Matthew 24, verse 3 to 14. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another, and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Good morning. Good to see all of you out an hour early. I'm glad you all are here. If we've not had the privilege of meeting yet, my name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Main Line. We are continuing our Sunday morning teaching series today, and we are looking at something that Scripture calls the last days, the end times, the end of the ages. It's the period of time between Jesus' first and his second comings. And as we saw last week, it's a period of just massive upheaval of global suffering. It comes from both human sources as well as from a broken planet. And so Jesus says that these days are marked by wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, natural disasters. And he says that's normal life. That's the world that you and I live in. Now, why are we studying this? Yes, I understand Jesus said it, but... <laughs> Jesus said a lot of things. Why are we studying this at this point in time? Well, let me ask you a different question. Do you think that you are ready for this kind of world? A world that's marked by the intensity of this kind of suffering. Are you ready to handle it with faith and optimism? With the sense of God being on the move, bringing his kingdom to a very dark world that is racked with what he describes as birth pains. Do you know in these kinds of times how to find him in this chaotic suffering world so that you are now doing what he's doing? Now, if you think back to the last several years, we've seen a lot of upheaval. And I'm not sure, my perspective, that the American church, capital C Church, has necessarily handled all of that suffering very well. At least not in a way that looked noticeably different from the two sides of the culture war that we are engaged in. Instead, the American church just kind of gravitated toward one end of the continuum or the other. But that's not our calling, to adopt and align ourselves with one of the ways that the world responds to crises. 
We saw just a couple of weeks ago that Jesus calls us always to a third way of responding to life, recognizing that his kingdom is not of this world, and so it doesn't draw on the end of any continuum. Instead, his approach is always to call us off the continuum of this world and to live in line with him and his kingdom, which then makes me ask, have we the church in America, capital C, have we suffered and have we responded to suffering in a way that is markedly different from how our friends and neighbors have suffered? Now, I have seen some of that, so the picture is not entirely bleak. But I'm going to be frank, I've not seen a lot of it. And so I'm concerned that we as the American church, and by extension then what we as Renewal, are just not ready for, the, for living in the kind of world that Jesus is describing here the kind of world that he says is always going to be our present reality i was struck by one of the emails that the missions committee sent out to the cgs you may remember reading this it was from a mission agency in ukraine at the start of the war and the person who was writing from ukraine listed out a number of prayer requests and then ended by saying this we hurt we believe, we fight on our knees, and the way God shows us, yet we are getting exhausted. Please pray for those staff who stayed in Kiev and in other cities where there are heavy battles. We are not prepared for this. But God is teaching us faith in the midst of it all. That line stuck in my head. We are not prepared for this. We are not ready. Renewal, why are we going through this study? It's to help us get ready, ready to live in the reality of the world that is rather than the world that we wish there was. Americans have largely bought into the modern myth that if we are properly educated, reasonably moral, work hard, give ourselves to capitalism and believe in democracy, then what? Life should work out pretty well. It should create a safe and a comfortable place for us on this planet. And history, just what? It punches a hole in that myth over and over and over again. And yet humanity does what we keep going back to the same things over and over and over again. Things that don't work any better now than they did the previous times we tried them. Jesus is telling us here that at some point in your life, massive upheaval, upheaval will be back. Along with confusion, along with threats, both real threats and perceived threats, and a heightened emotionalism, panic, that makes clear thinking impossible. That's what we learned last week. And Jesus says you can count on that in your lifetime. In other words, the last several years have not been an aberration. The time for being prepared then is when? It's not in the middle of suffering. It's when you have the opportunity to step back a little bit and to think a little bit more clearly when there's a lull and you can listen to Jesus as he helps you not only see what the world is like, but then as he helps you figure out, what is this third way? How do I navigate my way through? Now, the world that Jesus described last week that all of humanity faces is horrific. But he doesn't stop there for his people. He goes on to say that it's even worse if you're going to follow him. That along with the normal horrors of living in this world that everyone experiences, you will face a special kind of hatred from the rest of the world, a hatred that you can't avoid. And I know that that sounds really weird to most of us. It's not our regular experience of being regularly hated. 
And we've been raised in an environment that insists on treating others fairly. We know that the country doesn't always live up to its ideal, but that is the ideal that we've been raised on all of our lives. And so we don't expect to be singled out and hated for what we believe. We expect other people to treat us fairly, or at least to try to treat us fairly. And Jesus breaks into our expectations this morning to help us understand that is not reality. He teaches us to expect to be hated by the people around us. So if you're going to live in this world and handle that kind of hatred, you have to learn three things today from this passage. First, you have to see that the kind of hatred that Jesus is talking about is inevitable. That you will face it if you follow him. Second, you have to see that there are bad but pretty normal ways of responding to it. And then third, you have to see that there is a surprising way to handle it. Okay, that's our focus this morning. That being hated is inevitable, that there are multiple bad ways of responding to it, and that there is a surprising way, a third way, to respond to the hatred that you should expect on this planet. Okay, diving in. Point one, why hatred is inevitable. Jesus says that the source of the hatred is your connection to him. Verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation, that's persecution, and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. For my name's sake. That's the source of the hatred. Jesus does not say that you're going to be hated for what you do. There are some people who call themselves Christians who are hated because they do hateful things. They don't like people who are not like them and who do things that they don't approve of, but instead of loving those people, extending themselves to them, helping them understand that there's a God who also would love them if they let him, instead of loving them, they condemn them. And they do so in a way that gives Christianity a bad name because essentially they begin and end with law, with how bad someone else is. Remember back when I lived in Philadelphia, there was a street evangelist who, if you rode the subways, uh, in the 1980s, you ran into. Uh, some of you may have done this. I don't know her name, but my friends and I referred to her as the hell lady. She had this self-styled prophet kind of vibe. She would set up in one of the underground concourses, normally during rush hour, and she had this A-frame sign, had a lot of Bible verses on it. I don't remember any of the particular ones. They, I think, had to do something with uh, God's coming judgment. And she would stand there in the middle of crowds of people rushing back and forth, and she would yell. Now, I cannot do justice to her vocal quality, but it was piercing. It rose up above all of the rest of the noise and confusion. And she would stand there yelling at the top of her lungs the same thing, You're all going to hell! And she had a way of modulating that that lasted forever. Never once saw her have an actual conversation with anyone. Now, on one level, she's right. God's people accepted. But what was front and center was not how offensive it is that God had to come down to die for people who hate him and want nothing to do with him. What was most offensive was her personality and approach. And so she confronted you with herself far more than she confronted you with an offended God, which made it easy then to what? To ignore her because she was offensive. She was a nut, did nutty things. I hated that experience. I'm certain that I'm not alone. 
That is not what Jesus is talking about here. You will be hated by all nations, he says, not because you do hateful things, but simply for my name's sake. Not because of what you do, but because of who you are. Because you are connected, and therefore you are the visible reminder that humans are so screwed up that God had to come to earth to die to clean up the mess that we made. That there was no other choice, no other way for us to be good enough for him. And that, that what? That offends our human pride. It offends our dignity. Our belief that we're really not so bad, certainly not that bad, that sure, everyone needs a little help now and then, that everyone could be better, but not so bad that there's absolutely no hope for any of us unless God himself pays for what we, we've done. That's offensive. And that's why Christianity is so different from all other religions. All other religions do what? They tell you how to live a good life what you need to do, what you need to believe, so that you can figure out how to get to God or so that you can become one with the universe. Christianity is completely different. It's not about you figuring out how to get to God. It's about how God has figured out how to get to you after you've offended him. That's what the presence of Christ on this earth means, that God has come to you because you could never come to him. And that's offensive to someone who's caught up in the idea that they're okay as they are, or that the areas in their life that are not okay, well, those are small enough, what, to, that they can handle them on their own. Christ's presence blows those theories away, and when you are connected to him, when you willingly align yourself with him, you adopt his perspective on you, you embrace his sacrifice for you, you love him for what he's done for you, you try to make him known to others, when you do all of that, you are now the visible reminder of everything that self-sufficient, self-satisfied people hate. And they're not going to simply hate the God who dares to confront them with their condition. They'll hate his representative as well. It's one reason why being hated is inevitable. There's a second way in this passage that you see why hatred is inevitable. It's down in verse 12. A little phrase there when lawlessness will be increased. Lawlessness will be increased. What is lawlessness? It's a rejection of law, obviously, but it's not a rejection of just any law. Jesus is not referring here to general societal laws that we decide for ourselves. He's referring instead to there being a law above every society, a moral law that's been given to us by a moral lawgiver. It's another way that God intrudes himself into our world that is not welcomed by this world. And so people are lawless. They reject the law that the lawgiver has given. Instead of saying yes to God and no to yourself, no to what you want, that would be lawful, people say no to God and yes to what they want. That's lawless. It's when people decide to become their own lawgivers. So why then will people hate you? Because you've made the opposite choice. You've decided that God and his law are so good and that they are something that you have to obey, something that you have to listen to, that you have now aligned yourself with the lawgiver. You said that, yes, it is right, it's good, that there should be an external restriction on your own autonomy. A restriction over your 
right to choose your own ethics. A restriction that's good. And there's a restriction because there is this objective, external, ethical standard that is fixed and unchangeable. And you think that's a good thing. One that has been built into this world by the one who built it. Believe that, and you will be hated. Because that flies in the face of how the modern world conceives of law. The world that we live in does not want an unchangeable law that we are always accountable to in all times and all places. And so the secular West has worked very hard to uncouple right and wrong from something that is objective. Instead, we've embraced the idea of moral relativism. That what's right for you might not be right for me. Doesn't make it objectively right or wrong. It's just what? It's just a difference. You do you, I'll do me. And so it subjectively becomes something that we like or dislike, not something that is objectively right or wrong. Now we can discuss it, we can debate the merits of one side or the other, but since morality is relative, not based on any kind of pre-existing objective standard that can be known, what we can never say to each other is, this is good and this is bad. You should do this, you should not do that. We can't say that. There's no standard that lets us say that. And so we say, well, what's true for me is not true for you. There are multiple truths. There's your truth, and then there's my truth. And if you want to claim that something is the truth, well, that's what? That's just a power grab. That's just you trying to impose your values onto me. Now, just as an aside, the whole idea of moral relativism is completely unworkable. And everyone on this planet knows it. Just think for a moment. If there is no objective standard out there, then you cannot say the war in Ukraine is wrong. You can't say invading a peaceful country is wrong. You can't say that it's morally objectionable, that it should not happen. You can't say that because there's nothing for you to appeal to for your objection or for your conclusion that it should not happen. Instead, you have to say something like, I have certain negative feelings about this. I know my feelings are not universally shared. I know I have no right to impose how I feel onto someone else. All I can say is, I don't like it. And you realize nobody says that. But if there is no objective standard of morality, if there is no law and there is no lawgiver, you can't say, this is wrong. All you can say is, I don't like it. And then you have to make room for someone else to say, but I do like it, and I'm going to do it. Now, you might be able to force that other person to stop, but that's an exercise in power, not in morality. What you cannot do with moral relativism is be morally outraged. Reject the law and the lawgiver. Become lawless, and you lose the ability to say to yourself or to someone else, anyone else, what you're doing is wrong. You should not do that. You should do this instead. And so our modern world is stuck. We still want to be able to make moral assessments and moral judgments. We want to say that this war is objectively wrong, not just I don't like it, it's not just an attitude, it's wrong, and it's not just wrong for some people, it's wrong for everyone. We want to be able to say that, 
but we hate the idea of an external lawgiver who makes those assessment and assessments and judgments possible. We hate the idea of a lawgiver with a law that we have to obey because there's times where we just want to do what we want to do and his law stands in the way. Take the very small issue of sexuality and gender. Try and introduce God's law into the public discourse sometime. Be as gentle and as calm and as sympathetic as you can be. And you will learn in a heartbeat how much the society that you live in rejects the lawgiver and his law. And you'll learn how much it hates those who remind it that there is a law, an objective external law that they are breaking. Embrace God and his law, and you will be hated in this world. Now, Jesus says that here, but this is actually a theme that runs throughout Scripture. In this world that opposes God, any time that he reveals something about himself, it opposes that, and it will also then oppose you. Jesus could not have been clear when he was talking to his disciples on the night before he died. He told them in John chapter 16, If the world hates you, know that it hated me first. Know that it has hated me before it hated you. Excuse me. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Okay, that's point one. If you're connected to Christ in this world, it's inevitable. You will be hated by this world for his name's sake. Point two. When you face this kind of hatred, there are a couple easy, bad responses to it. First, verse 10, you can capitulate. You can surrender to it. You can renounce your former allegiance to Christ and you can join the world, verse 10. After you've been hated by all nations and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Jesus says many. Many will fall away. They will fall away from him, fall away from the Christian faith and they'll join the rest of the haters becoming one of the haters who had hated them earlier. I've been reading an awful book. It's put out by the Voice of the Martyrs. It's called Hearts of Fire. It's eight short stories of women who have suffered for their faith around the world relatively recently. This is not a book that you race through. It's gut-wrenchingly honest about the brutality that these women have endured. It's honest about their own internal struggles, their own internal doubts. It's honest about how they clung to their faith even when they knew that it was going to cost them everything they had. It's a book that you want to read slowly, maybe just one account at a time. That's how I'm going through it. So that you can think about what you're reading. You turn it over, you meditate on it, let it impact you as you think about our sisters and our mothers who have firsthand experience of the hatred that Jesus is talking about here. It's an awful book that I strongly recommend to you, Hearts of Fire. This week I read about Tara. Tara was born in Pakistan to a well-off Muslim family. At 12 years old, she saw an advertisement in the newspaper for a Bible correspondence course, and she signed up. Over the next two and a half years, she received studies that took her through all of the books of the Bible, and then she was awarded a Bible. As she's reading the Bible, it's just sparking more questions for her. So she secretly started going to a church and asking the pastor questions. He got uncomfortable and betrayed her. He went to her father and told her father what she was doing. 
Father went ballistic when he got home. She was banished off to her room. He came up afterward and then was enraged as he caught her reading her Bible. He and her brother brutally beat her, left her in a pool of blood with an ultimatum. Either she could marry a Muslim man or she could stay there in this room and starve and die. After three days, she was finally healed enough that she could start to pick herself up off the floor, realize she only had one choice, and so she escaped from the room, left the city. Her family continued to pursue her, letting others know that they were determined to kill her to remove the dishonor that she had brought on them. All of that is awful. It gets worse. She met a number of Christians who cared really well for her. She also ran into other Christians who kept exposing her. Two church members one time were jealous of the attention she was getting from a pastor's family. They turned her into Pakistan's intelligence service. A Christian magazine in the country interviewed her, wrote articles about her, and started receiving don donations for her, which they kept for themselves and did not pass along to her, even though she was in need. Another man in a different church propositioned her. She, he was already married, already had a family. She, when she turned him down, he incited others to have her arrested for converting to Christianity. Now put yourself in her position. Can you imagine what that's like? She knew that following Christ would mean that her family very likely would betray her. But others who follow Christ, or who said they do, how do you still have any faith after that? How do you not walk away from Christ yourself? Tara's faith is inspiring. It tells you that she found Jesus so worthwhile that she clung to him even when everyone else rejected her. The faith, however, of the other people, the ones who turned on her, is not inspiring. Jesus tells us in this passage to expect that. To expect that many, not some, that many will fall away. And that after betraying Christ, they will also betray anyone else who still follows him. Okay, that's one bad response to being hated, to capitulate to, to join the haters. Second bad response is just as bad. And that is to compromise your faith in the direction of the haters. Verse 11. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Now, if you remember, we saw last week that many false messiahs would rise up in the context of wars and rumors of wars, false saviors who had promised that they could deal with the fear and the panic of living in that tumultuous world. Now we see that not only are there false saviors out there in our society, but in here inside the church, there will be false prophets. Prophets who rise up in the face of hatred and antagonism and lead people astray, lead people away from the faith, lead people away from being hated for Christ's name, which means they're going to lead people away from Christ toward what? Toward the culture that hates Christ. There will be prophets who will rise up, who will adjust themselves to the culture so that there's no longer any reason for hatred or antagonism. Prophets who modify Christ's message so that it doesn't provoke hatred in the larger society, but who do so in a way that appeals to Christians are in danger of being hated. I said earlier today that the church in the U.S. is in danger of doing that. 
and that we are in danger not in one direction but in two directions. Again, think about the last couple of years with the social upheaval that we've had, and what do you see the church doing? You see some parts of the church finding themselves more comfortable with conservative nationalism. Others are more comfortable drifting toward a progressive wokeness. And what you hear is absolutely frightening. You hear theological arguments developed in favor of each side. You hear the claim that this is what Christianity really is. Now, please hear this. When your theology fits comfortably into the larger world, when you don't feel tension with your society, when you can't be hated because you and the people that you hang with basically agree on the same things, you're in real danger of being led astray. Jesus says you will be hated not just by half of the U.S., but verse 9, by all nations, by both halves. So if you find a philosophical societal home in either half, a place where you're not hated, that should concern you. It concerns me. I've been intellectually aware for years that the world is not a friendly place to God or to his people. That's what the Bible says, beginning to end. I've taken my share of hits for that, and yet I've also felt fairly comfortable in this world. You think, why is that? Is it that the world was kinder to Christian beliefs earlier, and that it's getting more antagonistic now than it used to be? I think you can make that case. But I also think that I figured out how to go under the radar Got very good at reading when and when not to say things that would get me into trouble. Got very good at relying on and pursuing the cultural idols that my friends and neighbors do. I got very good at compromising. It's been good to see that, good to repent. If I've learned anything about my own spiritual blindness over the years, it's that I probably haven't seen all that there is that I need to repent of. Let me put a, fi a, a finer point on this. No one ever thinks they're compromising. No one ever says, I know that I'm not fully following Jesus in all areas of my life, that there are places and ways I resist him and his discipleship, but I don't care. Because I know if I fully follow him, people won't like me. I can't stand the thought of that. So let me sit down now and see how I can modify my theology so that it's in tune with the people that I like, so that it's in tune with the people that I want to like me. No one thinks like that. How does your theology drift? You get tired of taking it on the chin. And then you stumble into a teaching, a false prophet, of whom there will be many, who's found a way to thread the needle, a way to follow Jesus and be well thought of in this world, and you find that very appealing. Jesus says here that threading the needle is just not possible. If you follow me, you will be hated. Now let's talk a moment about what happens when you give in to the haters. What's the result of either capitulating or compromising? Jesus says, verse 12, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. I hope you're allowing the, the manys to impact you. Verse 10, many will fall away. Verse 11, many will be led astray. Now verse 12, the love of many will grow cold. 
Again, you think about what's being, what's taking place here. He's talking about people who once followed him, but aren't any longer, who've either compromised their faith or who have capitulated. And the result of that for both groups, for the many, is that their love will grow cold. I think, well, why is that? It has to do with the lawlessness that we talked about earlier. Again, lawlessness is when I decide to say no to God and yes to myself. That feels good in the moment. I'm doing what I want to do. But you have to remember what the law of God is. Jesus sums it up. He says the essence of God's law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And so the law is about putting the good of others in front of your own wants and desires. It's about saying no to what you want in the moment so that you can give to someone else what they need. That's the essence of lawfulness. When you move in the opposite direction, when you put your desires in front of someone else's needs, you're not practicing love. You're practicing selfishness. You're loving a little bit less than you did before. And Jesus says here that there's a progression, that the love of many will grow cold. doesn't become cold all at once. It grows cold over time. It progressively gets less and less warm as you choose over and over to avoid being hated, as you over and over choose your comforts and your desires over what God has said. And that's why churches and denominations die slowly when they compromise. When they adapt themselves to their society, they're making the decision to say no to God and yes to their comfort, to reduce the tension between themselves and their society. And when they do that, they don't fall apart all at once. They end up withering away. Love for God, love for others grows cold. One of my seminary professors put it this way one time. He said, they're like cut flowers. Still beautiful to look at, but there's no root anymore to energize them. And so they will wilt. They have to. It's just a matter of time. Capitulate or compromise, you end up in the same place. Your love will grow cold, and the haters will have won. That's point two, common ways of responding to hate, which leaves us then with point three, that there is a surprising way to respond to hate. One that comes from those who endure. You see here that there are really only two groups who come to Jesus. There are those who endure and those who don't. Those who endure to the end will be saved. They don't give in to the haters. They endure. They stay faithful to Christ throughout all the ways that they are hated. They will be saved, but they do something surprising before the end. Because if there are really only two groups, those who endure and those who don't, then there are those whose love grows cold and those whose love stays warm. How do you know that those who endure have love that doesn't grow cold? Look again in verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now you've got two things that are happening simultaneously. There are some people who endure, they're not falling away. They're not going astray. And at the same time that these people endure, the gospel is going out to all nations. 
you think, well, who is it that's proclaiming it? It's obviously those who endure. They're the only ones who've stayed faithful. Who could proclaim it? And that tells you then that their love is not growing cold. That their love is actually tapped down into deep roots that keep nourishing it. Why do you know that? Because in the face of persecution, in the face of being hated, they respond in the most loving way that you can imagine. Get the picture. These people are being persecuted, but all they're doing is what? They're holding on to Jesus. They're being lawful. They're loving Christ, loving others, and they're being hated on. What's that tell you about the haters? It tells you they've got a huge problem. When you can hate someone who is busy loving, when you can hate someone that you have no reason to hate, you're really not okay inside. You're giving clear evidence that there is no good thing in you because only a truly bad person would want to hurt a good person. Only a bad person really doesn't know how bad they are. Now, if that's you, if you're one of the haters, what is it that you really need? <laughs> you need the gospel of the kingdom in that moment. You need to know in that moment that there is a God who knows that you're stuck in hatred, knows that you can't get yourself unstuck, and not only knows that, but who has worked hard to get to you so that he can unstick you. That's the gospel that haters need. That's the gospel that the endurers are proclaiming. That's real love. When you want someone who's hating you to be free of their hatred, when you don't want revenge, when you don't want them to get what's coming to them and be judged, when you want the very best thing for them that they could possibly have, that's love. It's not just warm love. That's red-hot love. Love that's willing to risk being hated even more in the moment for the sake of the hater. And that's surprising. Okay, how do people normally respond in this world when they're bullied? Don't they tend to withdraw? Pull back so that they don't get hurt as much? Or, or they get aggressive, they fight back, try to hurt the other person? Or they suck up to the bully, try to get on their good side, become like them? All of those make sense. And all of those are what? They're all inward, aimed at protecting the self, trying to make the other stop, or at least to minimize how much hurt they're dishing out. It's not what it means to follow Jesus, to adopt his unique third-way response that has nothing to do with how this world responds. When you follow Jesus, when the good news of what God is doing touches you, it changes you, it, it, it transforms you so that you now relate differently to people. You move outwardly toward them for their good, even if they're hating you. You bring them the good news that transforms you because haters need more gospel, not less. When you get this book, Hearts of Fire, and you read Tara's story, you'll see that that's what comes out of her life. She goes everywhere evangelizing, ministering to other people like herself who have converted uh, from Islam. She reaches outward to bring other people the good news that was brought to her. Now, just a word about this gospel and how it goes out. Because there are times where we'll talk about how preaching the gospel is through our good works to others. And there is a place for that. There has to be evidence in your life that the message you proclaim has actually done something. That it has turned you outward in love for others when you used to be inward. 
So if you're not stirred up inwardly to help the people around you in some tangible way, then the message of the gospel has no credibility. Your life has to show that you've become a lover. But that's not what's in view here. The word proclaimed in verse 14 is something that a herald does with a message, speaks it out loud. And so these lovers, these endurers, are going around proclaiming that they've been loved by God, proclaiming that anyone else can be too. They've benefited from the message that Jesus brought to them, and now they take his mission and they bring that message to others. At the same time that you realize there's a cost. If you give yourself to proclaiming the gospel, your life will get harder. You will attract even more negative attention. You will be hated. On the other hand, if you don't bring the message, it shows that you are not enduring to the end. Shows that you are going astray, that your love is growing cold for those around you. These are the only two choices that Jesus gives you here. And one more time, Jesus challenges every single one of us, calls all of us outside of our comfort zones. To those of us who are more culturally engaged, who like the times and places we live in, who just want to be everyone's friend, he says, if you really follow me, you will be hated. Accept that and identify with me and go proclaim the gospel. And to those who are more separatist, who want to circle the wagons and just be left alone. He says, if you really follow me, you'll be hated. Now, reach outside yourself and love the people around you. Go proclaim the gospel. Only those who endure to the end will be saved, and only those who endure will see that the gospel is proclaimed throughout the whole world. So wrapping up, how do you know which one you are? Someone who endures or someone who doesn't? How do I know which one I am? It's really easy not to endure. It's really easy to capitulate in a moment of pressure, really easy to compromise, really easy to feel guilt over lost opportunities, times when you gave in to the haters and pulled your punches, times when you did not proclaim the gospel that you could have because you didn't want to be hated. What do you rely on then? Once again, you don't have a choice. You have to go back to the gospel that saved you. The gospel that tells you Jesus endured so that you would endure. He was hated on this earth throughout his life, ostracized by the religious and political leaders, criticized, tested by them. His life threatened multiple times, all for what? Simply saying what was true. That the very best goodness of this world is like a filthy rag. That, that people can do nothing to save themselves. But that God is willing to save them anyway. And for that, Jesus was betrayed by someone who followed him. Delivered over to tribulation, to persecution, to being mocked and beaten, humiliated. And then he was killed. He was hated and he endured to the end went to the cross, and he stayed there. And while he's there, he's doing things that are surprising. He asked God to forgive the ones who were persecuting him, the soldiers who were killing him. He forgave one of the two men he was crucified with. If you go back to the accounts of Matthew and Mark, you realize that the, there were two thieves who were crucified with him, 
and both of them had been mocking him. They were using every last ounce of their remaining strength to insult their creator to his face. And then something happened. The mercy of God broke through, and one of them asked Jesus to save him. And Jesus promised in that moment that he would, all while he's enduring the wrath of God against every single time that you and I did not endure. Every single time that we gave in to compromise. Every single time when we refused to love when we were hated. Jesus endured to the end so that he could save this thief on the cross and so that he could save you and me as well. The only thing that man had going for him at the end of his life is that he wanted Jesus. He wanted to be where Jesus is. It mattered to him to be with Christ. That's what it means to endure. It's that simple. It's that it matters to you to be with Christ. Because if it matters to you to be with him, that means that your love has not grown cold. It may not be as warm as it could be. But if it matters to you to be with him, that's a sign that he is at work in you, rescuing you so that you will be with him. It's a sign that he'll keep being at work, making sure that you endure. It's a sign that what he endured was so that you would endure and so that he would transform you to respond in surprising ways when you face the same kind of hatred that he did. Lord God, thank you that you did endure. Lord, there were so many opportunities that you had to turn away and to turn off the road, and you would not have sinned. Lord, you endured for our sake. You came to rescue us, to seek and to save the lost. That's us. And you didn't stop enduring until you accomplished that. Lord, move in our hearts now to respond to you, to say to you, it does matter to us that we are with you, that we want to be with you more than we want anything else. In Jesus' name, amen.